Hey, if you got a Bible, open to Mark chapter six. Mark chapter six is where we're gonna be. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screens. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Uh, on your way out, stop by our next steps table, straight through the back doors, we'll give you one. Uh, or if you wanna just like run back there now, you can. Uh, we will all watch you though. Um, Mark 6, okay, so last week we jumped back into our study through Mark that we've been in since September. If you missed last week, it's not one you want to miss. Zach preached um, a really fresh message on a passage that uh, we've seen probably many times before, and so I would encourage you to go back and listen to that one online if you missed it. Also, while we're talking about sermons not to miss, three weeks ago at Saul Company, uh, uh, Preston Arnold preached a message on Exodus 5 and 6, uh, talking about the Israelites being enslaved to sin. Guys, it's, it is a message you got to go back and listen to. So uh, look up that online, the Salt Company, Michigan State, uh, on Spotify, Instagram, whatever. That's a sermon you don't want to miss. Um, and I was thinking about this, as I was thinking about these guys uh, just bringing the heat when they go, get up here to teach. Like, if the future of the church is, um, like, if you can see or tell what the future of the church is going to look like based on, like, uh, the the, the, the younger leaders coming up, I feel like the future of the church looks pretty bright. Uh, wouldn't you say that? Um, and, and actually this week uh, at the Commons Youth, we, uh, uh, we had a college guy teach and I heard he, he killed it too, like in a good way, killed it. Uh, so um, anyways, Mark 6, you there yet? Mark 6? Um, I'll give you a second to get there. Uh, listen, you are one of my favorite groups. You are my favorite group uh, to teach to. Um, uh, someone in the front row goes, stop it. Uh, no, I, I love it because you guys lean in and, uh, and, and you listen well. Uh, a lot of you take notes. Most of you uh, seem to take notes. And, uh, and actually for a Midwestern crowd, you're actually pretty verbal in response. Uh, my, my first time, I'm, I'm from Dallas. And so my first time teaching in the Midwest was in Iowa. You know how I feel about Iowa. Uh, and I was, I'm teaching this sermon and like nobody's moving. I don't even see facial expressions. It's just like dead. And, uh, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm just laying this massive egg of a sermon. I get off the, the, the stage and this guy just with tears in his eyes gives me this big hug. Like that was so convicting. Oh, and I was like, really dude? I mean, you're just sitting there. <laughs> stone cold face, like, come on, give me something. Uh, but I love how you guys do respond and, you know, visibly, verbally, I, I'm thankful for that. But I'm saying all that to say this, you guys lean in well, but I'm, I'm asking you this morning to lean in harder than you've ever leaned in before. And, and the reason for that is the passage that we're studying this morning is absolutely critical to you understanding who you are in Christ. And it's absolutely critical to us understanding really who we are as a church. And, and this is one of those kind of like uh, bedrock passages for what we believe. And so Mark chapter six, we're gonna start in verse 53. If you've got it, let me hear you say, I got it. So it says, when they had crossed over, they came to a land or to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him, him being Jesus, and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on, on their beds to wherever they heard that he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Okay, so then verse one of chapter seven, it says, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions 
that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches, which is just like funny to me because I'm like, my kid just with a purple marker drew all over our white couch yesterday when he'd wash our couch. Verse five, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now we're gonna make it much further than chapter seven, verse five, but I wanna stop here and just kind of go straight to it. Notice the difference between these two events that we see right out of the gate. I mean, the end of chapter six, what do you see? What is happening at the end of chapter six? I mean, Jesus, he's going around healing people. In fact, they land on the other side of the lake and get a threat. And it says people were running and gathering all of the sick people they knew to bring them to Jesus just so they could touch the fringe of his garment and they were being healed. I mean, this is absolutely insane what's happening. People are being healed from sicknesses and disease uh, that for, you know who, know, who knows how long they were being like burdened by this stuff and they're being set free. I mean, this is like revival type stuff. That's not a word thrown around, I feel like, too much in the Midwest and the South. People are always talking about revival, you know, let's have a revival, you know? But this is like legit revival type stuff. And then you get to chapter seven, verse one, and look at what it says. It says, then the Pharisees showed up. And it's like that statement just sucks the air out of the room. You can even feel it in here. It sucks the air out of the room. Everything changes when the Pharisees show up. Now, we haven't run into the Pharisees in a while. It was, it was chapter three last time we saw them. Maybe chapter six, uh, maybe they were the guys rejecting Jesus, but explicitly, the last time they were mentioned was chapter three, which was like October, so it's been a while. And, and here's what we found out in chapter three. The Pharisees, they are the stuffy, self-righteous religious guys who have it out for Jesus. So here in chapter seven, what happens is Jesus is healing people. People are being freed from things that, man, they've been burdened by for who knows how long, and then the Pharisees show up. I can't help but think that Mark is trying to show us something by this juxtaposition of these two events here. Like he's gotta be, in fact, it's, I, I think he is, and it's critical to us understanding what this whole book is about. But before we look at the difference, I wanna, I wanna point this out first. When people's lives are being changed by Jesus, the enemy pretty much always tries to shut it down. And we see this in the gospels, we see this in Acts, we see it all throughout church history, and we're seeing it today. A lot of different examples. And as I'm studying for this, I'm thinking about like what's happening in the life of our church right now. I mean, in the past week and a half, we've seen, I think like 20 college students profess faith in Christ. Uh, we've seen others who are saying, I'm, I'm at this point where I'm like ready to publicly profess my faith in Christ through getting baptized. I heard of two conversations or two stories that have been playing out for a while. Um, I heard about them this week. Uh, 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 two community members, men, who've been sharing the gospel with their coworkers for a long time. One of those coworkers came to faith this past week. Another one, I don't remember if he came to faith this past week, but I, knew, I do know he came forward and said, hey, I'm ready to like get baptized and profess my faith publicly. Uh, he said that this past week. There's incredible things happening. Other conversations, stories of people taking their next step with, with Jesus. I think about two Friday nights ago, this room was packed full, you know, seven o'clock uh, with you know, 300 or so people who've been praying and get this, fasting, who does that? Going hard after the heart of God all day long. Many of you, that was you, you're here. I mean, God is doing something in and through you guys, through our church, and I feel like we need to stop and say, when Jesus in here was healing people, setting people free, the enemy always tried to get in the way and shut it down. 
And, and when Jesus is working through his church today to heal people and set people free, the enemy always tries to get in the way and shut it down. You need to be aware of this. It makes me think of 2 Corinthians 2.11 where Paul says, don't be outwitted by Satan. Church, don't be outwitted. So here in chapter seven, verse one, the Pharisees show up and they start accusing Jesus and his followers of some ridiculous stuff. Don't be surprised when the same thing happens to you. Don't be surprised when the same thing happens to us as the Lord is working through us. Okay, but let's keep moving. So back to verse one, chapter seven. It says, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed, dirty hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews don't eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Okay, so Jesus, he's up in Galilee, healing people, doing all of this amazing stuff. People's lives are being dramatically changed, yet the official uh, Jewish ruling council, also known as the Sanhedrin back in Jerusalem, uh, gets this group of guys, these Pharisees, to send them up to where Jesus was, not to find out more about this great power that he had, but instead to try to shut it down. So up to this point, uh, Jesus, he'd already violated some of their Sabbath laws, and so now they're like keeping a close eye on him uh, to see what else they can catch him in. And so here, in this case, they catch him and his disciples violating their tradition about the ceremonial uh, washing of hands. And let me, let me explain this, okay? Because the ceremonial washing of hands, it, it wasn't a hygiene thing. It was purely ceremonial to get rid of uh, whatever defilement the Jews may have accidentally picked up along the way from Gentiles and Samaritans. Now, let me explain that, okay? So basically, uh, they believed that if their hands were defiled and then they, they ate with those defiled hands, then it would defile the food that they were eating. And if it defiled the food that they were eating, when that food went into their body, it would defile their body. And if their, if their body was defiled, they, that would therefore defile them before the Lord, making them unable to worship him in the temple. That's what they thought. Did you follow me there? If not, we'll come back to it. So they catch the disciples doing this and they throw a big fit about it. We see verse five, it says, the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So the Pharisees show up, point the finger at Jesus and his disciples and say, y'all got dirty hands. Now, I love this. I feel like God just always knows what I'm preaching on every week. And so uh, he provides an illustration so often in the middle of the week for what I'm preaching on. Uh, honestly, this week he went a little bit too far, twice. Uh, so <laughs> Thursday, uh, Thursday morning, nor normally I'm out of the house before my two youngest, we have three kids, fourth on the way. Uh, I'm normally out of the house uh, by the time our two youngest are awake. But on Thursday, my wife went to have coffee with another woman in our church, and so I got to get the kids up, which is a real privilege. I love it. They're always excited when I get them up. Um, so I could hear Trace and Rosie Grace. They sleep in the same room. Uh, I could hear them chatting, chatting with each other, so I go up there to wake them up. As soon as I open the door, this stench hits me in the face, and I almost like immediately start gagging everywhere. And so I look in there thinking, oh my gosh, this is not gonna be good. And I see Trace, my youngest, um, he's standing in his crib, <laughs> with his hands you know, on the railing looking down, and I said, Trace. And as soon as I say Trace, he looks up and he throws his hands up in the air like a criminal who just got caught, <laughs> sticks, sticks his hands up, and I said, Trace, what are you doing? He doesn't say anything. And I look at his hands, and I realize that his hands are covered in something. And so I said, Trace, what is on your hands? 
And he looks at me, and his cute little squeaky voice, he goes, poop. <laughs> I was like, oh no. So I go in there, what Trace had done is he had reached into his diaper, and he was taking the poop out, and honestly, you know what I think he was trying to do? I think he was trying to throw it at his sister who is in the crib on the other side of the room because there was poop that made, he doesn't have a good arm just yet, he's only like one and a half. Poop was about halfway across the room all over the floor, and all over his crib, and all over him. And so, I mean, honestly, like, I'm not even mad. I'm like, I mean, kind of laughing, and you know, I, you know, dude, you gotta get a better arm if you wanna hit your sister with your poop, but. Um, so all I could do was just grab him, and, uh, you know, and, and, and toss him into the bath, not toss him, gently set him <laughs> in the bathtub, don't call CPS, uh, and clean him off and then go vacuum and clean and sanitize and all this stuff. So my kid's hands were absolutely, like super dirty and gross. And um, so that was one story that he gave me. Then the second story he gave me, uh, so the next day, Friday, um, I took the kids, I was taking them to the Science Museum, uh, Impressions 5, it was packed, there was no parking anywhere, and my kids are melting down because they wanted to go to the Science Museum, so I'm thinking, shoot, what do I do? So I said, all right, let's go to the trampoline park instead. So uh, Friday's 10 to noon, toddler time, and so it's cheap, and so show up, and whenever I go to toddler time, it's usually just, um, well, I'll get to that in a second, but I, we get there. We're jumping around on the trampoline, right? And Rosie Grace, my, my three-year-old daughter, at one point comes running up to me, and she's like, Daddy, 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 I gotta go potty, I gotta go potty, I gotta go potty. And I'm thinking, you know, with Rosie Grace, when she says she has to go potty, you got like seconds before it, uh, you know, comes out everywhere. And so I grab her, I yell at Judah, who was like across the way, I said, come on, we're going to the bathroom. I grab Trace, and I'm like running out of there with these kids. Probably looked like I was kidnapping them. Nobody stopped me, though. And I take him straight to the bathroom, I throw, again, I gently set Rosie Grace on the toilet, and, you know, she goes pee, and I'm like, yeah, you know, RG, you know, way to go, and, and so then we go to wash her hands, and uh, while I'm washing her hands, Judah and Trace are standing in there with me, Trace disappears, and I'm like, where did Trace go? I turn around, uh, brother had gone to the urinal and had grabbed the urinal cake out of the urinal at uh, the trampoline park, and he's, you know, playing with it and stuff, and I'm like, you have to be kidding me right now. You are so disgusting, dude. Um, his hands were gross, so I had to spend the next, like, you know, however long sanitizing his hands, and to be honest with you, I still wouldn't touch his hands if you see him around, because who knows uh, what he's touched. But my point is this. So, the Pharisees, in an attempt to shut Jesus down, they, they show up, they point the finger, and they say, hey, you guys have dirty hands, and you don't seem to care about it. So let's look at what Jesus says in response, verse six, and he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from, let, let me actually pause for a second. I mean, listen to what he's saying here. He says, you hypocrites. <laughs> I mean, Jesus gets a, a little bit saucy with these guys. And if you don't know this about Jesus, you need to know this about Jesus. Uh, he gets saucy sometimes. And I know one of the, fam you know, one of the most uh, popular books right now in you know, the Christian world is the book Gentle and Lonely, if you've read that book. And, and it's popular because, oh, we love the message. And it's a true message. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, you know, if you are burdened and heavy laden, I'm gentle, I'm lonely, come to me, I will take that burden. That is the gospel, it's incredible. I read half the book, didn't have to read the rest because it says it over and over and over and over, over again. But we love that book. 
But you gotta understand as you read that and all the other books written about the same thing today because that's what everybody wants to read. Don't confuse Jesus being gentle with lonely with, with Jesus not getting saucy sometimes and saying things with force. And that's what he does here. He fires right back. So he says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it's written. This people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. So the Pharisees, they show up, point the finger at Jesus, and they say, you, you guys have dirty hands. And Jesus says, you know, LOL, that's funny you point out our dirty hands because, hey, you guys have dirty hearts. Like, notice the difference in focus. In fact, I mean, if you're reading through this, you just see it, uh, verse 2 says they saw some of his disciples ate with hands. Like the Pharisees, they're focused on the hands. You see it, verse three, hands, verse five, hands. But then you get to what Jesus says, and he doesn't talk about the hands. Verse six, he talks about the heart. This is the difference between every other religion and the gospel. Religion deals with our hands. The gospel deals with our hearts. Religion is about external righteousness. The gospel is about internal righteousness. Religion is about superficial righteousness. The gospel is about true righteousness. And listen, the Pharisees thought that the way you become clean before God is by cleaning up the outside. But really, in cleaning up the outside, they were just covering up the inside, which is why Jesus says, you hypocrites. That word hypocrite, uh, the English word uh, is, is a transliteration of the Greek word hypocrite, uh, which is a word that they use to describe actors in ancient Greece. So actors in ancient Greece, they didn't wear makeup, uh, they wore masks. Uh, they wore masks. And so these actors or these hypocrites wore masks that allowed them to pretend to be someone they weren't. That's what hypocrites do. They pretend to be someone that they're not. They project outwardly something that's not true about them inwardly. So the Pharisees show up and say, hey, let's talk about your dirty hands. Jesus says, no, let's talk about your dirty hearts. You gotta see this. Religion can only penetrate so far into your life. And if it can only penetrate so far, that means it can only accomplish so much. This is why religion isn't very powerful, but the gospel is. So the gospel penetrates past the superficial and into the deepest parts of our life. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He goes on, he says, no, no creature's hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Because the gospel can penetrate into the deepest parts of our life, and because the gospel does penetrate into the deepest parts of our life, the gospel does so much more than just change us on the outside. It changes us at the core of who we are. Now, I want to come back to that in a second. But before we do, I want to show you something else. Uh, from what we're reading here, and it's really, really important. So go back to verse two. Verse two, it says, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees 
and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. Let me just pause here. Um, we're gonna see that word tradition a lot. And so I, I did this first service, super cheesy, so I'm gonna do it again this service. Every time I see the word tradition, I want you to count, okay? So uh, this first time, I, I, I said for the Pharisees, and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition, you would say one, okay, of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. So how many times do we see the word tradition in there? Six times. And when it says, the tradition of the elders, let me tell you what it's referring to. It's referring to the Jewish oral tradition that was added to the law of the Old Testament to try and spell out all the implications and potential applications of the law itself. So we've talked about this before, uh, but let me kind of explain it again. Many of the Jews, uh, they, they took the Old Testament law so seriously because they believed that it was by observing the law that anyone would be accepted by God. So to like put that another way, for them, it was life or death if they kept the law. And because they believed so much was on the line, if they didn't keep the law, they went further than what was required by the law and created what we would call fence laws. So imagine the law and then a fence built around it. These fence laws was 1,500 plus laws they created uh, that were supposed to keep people from coming even close to breaking God's law. This was the tradition of the elders. That's what it's referring to. And the tradition of the elders was passed down from generation to generation, primarily orally until around 8200. So like well after Jesus had lived on earth until it was like finally compiled into a written log called the Mishnah. That's the tradition of the elders. So when it keeps saying tradition in Mark seven, that's what it's referring to. And by the way, part of that tradition was the ceremonial washing of hands. But here's what you have to see. This is critical. Over time, you got the oral traditions, you got God's actual law. Over time, these oral traditions of the elders began to carry more authority than the actual law that had been given to them by God. Many Jews, including Pharisees, considered it worse to disobey the tradition of the elders than to disobey the law. They had, they had begun to place more authority on their own words than God's word. And you gotta listen to me here. Every time this happens, God's people end up in a deadly ditch. And, and it's not just the Pharisees that are prone to this. We're prone to this too. We've seen it happen a lot throughout, the, throughout, throughout church history. We're seeing it happen today. Uh, there's, there's a lot of obvious ways that people go and give more authority to man's word over God's word. We can pick on the you know, easy ones to pick on, Mormonism, you know, Jehovah's Witness, Prosperity Gospel. There's lots of examples. 
But honestly, I think we're always in this fight to stay centered on the gospel path. Like really, I, I would say, I would argue that pretty much all of church history has been a battle to stay centered on the gospel path. And more often than not, what happens is, uh, as we're trying to stay on the gospel path, we overcorrect, we jerk the wheel, and we end up in one of two ditches. We either end up in the ditch of legalism, which is all truth, no grace, or we end up in the ditch of license, which is all grace, no truth. And I'll just give you one example of how I think we're seeing this today. You know, right now as the church tries to grapple with the hot cultural topic of sexuality, I think we're overcorrecting and jerking the wheel into the ditch of all grace, uh, no truth. So how do we guard ourselves against this? I love how this, this one pastor, he, I think he put it best. He says, we've got to ask ourselves, are we uh, tradition-driven people or are we text-driven people? In other words, what holds the authority in our life? What holds the authority in our church? Is it man's word or is it God's word? It makes me think of Acts 17, 11, which describes the Jews in Berea like this. It says, they received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The, the Jews in Berea, they listened intently to what was being taught, and then they, they would always go back and check it against God's word. And by the way, notice the progression here. Notice the downward spiral progression. Starts in verse seven. It says, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Starts with just teaching. Then you get to verse eight and it says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. So it goes from teaching to like leaving the commandment, holding to something else. Then verse nine, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So it goes from teaching to leaving and holding to rejecting. And then verse 13, it says, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. So it eventually gets to a point where the tradition itself makes void God's word. And here's what's crazy about this. Looking at the context right here, this downward progression for the Jews, it actually began about 400 years prior to this. If you go back to Ezra and Nehemiah, they've been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years and they end up back in Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding you know, the walls of the city and they rediscover God's word. Nehemiah, you see they gather this Woodstock style gathering for Christians and Ezra gets up and just preaches from the word seven days straight, six to noon, like six hours a day. It's an incredible picture, Nehemiah 8. And coming out of it, they're like so convicted by their sin as they hear God's word read and they're re-familiarized re with it. Well, coming out of that is where these traditions of the elders began to be built. It wasn't overnight that the traditions outweighed the word. It was over a 400 year period and you've got to see this. It didn't happen overnight. It was a slow drift. And you gotta see that because drifting is often so much more deadly than sudden forceful change because it goes unnoticed for such a long time until it's caused so much damage. That's what we're seeing here. And that is why it's critical that we take everything back to God's word. You know, our number one value as a church is the gospel. Jesus is the main thing and always will be. Our number two value as a church is dependency. Our plumb line is God's word. Our power is God's spirit. Our posture is prayer. And our practice is to do life together. The, the first one's the first one on purpose. Our plumb line is God's word. This holds the most authority in this church. This is our authority. 
Anytime I get up here to teach, anytime Zach gets up here to teach, anytime Noah or whoever's teaching gets up here to teach, our goal is to point you to the word so that you can better understand it and remember it. Whose word holds the ultimate authority in your life? You gotta wrestle with that question. Whose word holds the ultimate authority in your life? So the Pharisees, they show up and let's, Let's kind of unpack this more. So Mark 7, 14 says, and Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, hear me all of you and understand there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he said, verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So the Pharisees show up and they say, hey, you guys got dirty hands. Jesus says, no, let's talk about your dirty hearts. And in verse 15, listen to what he says. He says, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus says, it's not what goes in that makes us dirty, it's what comes out. And guys, you gotta hear this. This is absolutely revolutionary. And here's why. If, if it is what goes in that makes us dirty, then that means at our core, we are naturally good. Follow me here. If it's what goes in that makes us dirty, that means that at our core, we're naturally good. We're corrupted from without, not from within. Basically, that would mean that anything bad about me is the fault of the external. And by the way, this is the driving theology of today. Like this is why our culture is so adamant that people affirm who you are because the driving theology of today says who you are is naturally good. But what Jesus says is it's not what goes in that makes us dirty, it's what comes out. And I love how Danny Aiken, he's a seminary guy, he says it like this, the basic problem of fallen humanity is not what we do, but who we are. In other words, at our core, we are sinful. Our hearts are not naturally good. They're naturally filthy. Listen, this is so critical to understand because if our primary problem is what we do, then the solution is to just change what we do. But the primary problem is not just what we do. If the primary problem is who we are, then the solution can't be simply changing what we do. The solution must go deeper than that and it must be more powerful than that. I mean, to put it another way, Jesus says, you can wash your hands all day long, but until your hearts have been washed, you're still dirty. Okay, so let's, let's keep reading verse 17. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, <laughs> love this, you are also without understanding. He's getting saucy again. Uh, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled, so it makes a poop joke, says if you eat stuff, it doesn't go to your heart unless you eat just like a bunch of 
McDonald's fries that will eventually get your heart. But he says, no, it goes to the toilet. That's what he's saying. And it, it's, it's kind of like crude, but it's, it's what Jesus says, and he's making a good point. Then he goes on and he says, thus he declared all foods clean. So he throws a little bit of shade at the, the self-righteous vegans and vegetarians in the room who like to judge us meat eaters. Uh, <laughs> You know, you meat eaters, if uh, you know, a vegan or vegetarian ever throws some judgment at you, which they do, that's what they do, uh, just show them Mark 7, 19. So there you go. He declared, all foods clean. Amen. <laughs> but in saying what he says here, and by the way, verse 20, he goes on, he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. In saying what he says here, he's basically summing up all of the ceremonial Old Testament law. All, all the laws that dealt with what they could and couldn't eat and the different cleansing they had to do. He sums it all up and he says this. He says, the ceremonial law was never meant to save you. It was meant to point. The ceremonial law was never meant to save you, it was meant to point, which leads to the question, what was it meant to point to? The purpose of the law was to point forward to or to foreshadow a greater cleansing to come. These laws were never meant to clean up your life. This is critical. These laws were never meant to clean up your life. The reason we don't follow these laws is because they were only meant to be an outward illustration of an inward change that would happen when Jesus came to save us from our sins. So verse 20, he says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus couldn't be more clear. He says, it's what comes out of a person that defiles him before God. It's what comes out of your heart that defiles you. And, and again, look at the list that he includes. It's like far from being comprehensive, but the list is actually really telling. Look again, he says, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Let me read to you these very powerful words from Charles Spurgeon talking about this list. He said, now notice first that this awful catalog, this horrible list of the unclean birds that find a cage within the human heart begins with things that are lightly regarded among men. Evil thoughts. We shall not be hanged for our thoughts, cries one person. He goes on, he says, I wish that such idle talkers would remember that they will be damned for their thoughts and that instead of evil thoughts being less sinful than evil acts, it may sometimes happen that in the thought, the man may be worse than in the deed. And then he says, since this indictment begins with evil thoughts, who among us can plead guiltless? Since evil thoughts are the first of sins, we had better meet the charge with immediate repentance and an instant faith in the only savior. 
Listen, not a single one of us can plead not guilty to the charge that our hearts are defiled. Not a single one of us is not in need of a greater washing and a deeper cleansing than what we ourselves can do. You've got to see this. You don't have different categories of sin listed here. It's evil thoughts listed right next to murder. I mean, who in here has never had an evil thought? Stand up. I mean, you're right in not standing up. None of us can... None of us can stand up to that one. And it's at this point that it's really important to remember what Jesus said last time he ran into the Pharisees in Mark 2 and 3, Mark 2, 17. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. There are two absolutely huge truths that come out of these three verses. The first is this, to the proud person to the proud person who says, man, I've not killed anybody. I've not cheated on my wife. I don't have a porn addiction. Yeah, but do you have evil thoughts? You need to be washed just as much as the murderer does. The second big truth to the ashamed person the ashamed person who says, man, I've done too much, I've gone too far, I have killed somebody. I did commit adultery on my wife and I have completely ruined my family. Yeah, well, you can be washed by the grace of God just as much as anybody else. And praise God that through Jesus, he has made a way for our hearts to be washed. You ever paid attention to Titus 3? Titus 3, starting in verse 4, says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Makes me think of John chapter 13. Do you remember this where Jesus, he's washing the disciples' feet and he gets to Peter and Peter's like, no, you ain't touching my feet. Remember what Peter says? He says, or remember what Jesus says? He says, no, Peter, unless I wash all of you, you have no part with me. And then Peter says, well, shoot, dump the whole bucket on me. It leads to the question for all of us, has your heart been washed by Jesus? And listen to the question carefully. The question is, has your heart, has your heart been washed by Jesus? Some of you, you're really good at religion. And you can wash your hands all day long, but until your heart has been washed, you're still dirty. The gospel has the power to do what our religious efforts can't. I got a story, but I, I don't want to waste time with it. So I just want to go to this. Um, this morning, as I was kind of going over my notes, I had this picture jump on my head. And I didn't share it first service because, you know, too many pictures, too many, 
uh, illustrations can maybe get messy, but I think it's really helpful. I had this image of a hamster on a hamster wheel. Anybody here used to have a hamster? Yeah, we all know Noah used to have a hamster. Remember that? Froze in the basement, died. Um, So you know what a hamster wheel is. And I just had this image, I just had this image of a hamster running on a hamster wheel, going nowhere. Guys, what a perfect picture of religion. Us working and working and working tirelessly, but getting nowhere, nowhere. This is what the gospel does. It plucks us off the hamster wheel. It sets us free from the hamster wheel. And some of you this morning, you need to be set free from the hamster wheel. Has Jesus washed your heart? He can do it. He can penetrate deeper than your works ever could. But here's the other thing. Some of you, you have been washed from Jesus. You have been plucked from the hamster wheel, but you keep crawling back on. And you need to be reminded of the truth that Jesus set you free. He did what you can't do. And it goes back to that picture we see at the beginning, this juxtaposition. I like throwing that out because y'all know I got my education in Arkansas and it's a big word and I feel important and intellectual. (laughs) But I think Mark put it there on purpose to show us this. The gospel brings change. Religion brings chains. The gospel sets us free from what all of us have been chained up to our whole life. Has your heart been washed by Jesus? This is what we believe. This is why we gather. This is who we are if you are in Christ. Let me pray for us.